Hello, I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. This is the March 30th DevOps Lunch and Learn discussion about security. And we had a really robust conversation about how to make security work in a DevOps environment. And that meant looking at it from a full spectrum of ways to go. And, and we were sort of frustrated that we, we couldn't pull things together as cleanly as we want. And so the conversation really extended beyond simple security into integrations and what you need to get done in order to automate security. Hope you'll enjoy it as much as I did. The topic that we talked about a couple weeks ago and I was going to come back to was security. Um, we had uh, Julian come in, talk about sort of Dev, DevSecOps. And then I was having a conversation the other day where it's like, you know, why don't we build security in more? And and I've always been frustrated that we never been so hard to do any, any like DevOps security is, even with DevSecOps being front and center, still seems like it's not baked in. It's super hard. I was curious about talking about talking that through. It it's a fine line, and uh, I mean, I, I I talk a lot with with, with people in, in the security field, and again, the, the common thread is that um, the moment security becomes uh, a road bump, it, it gets it gets worked around and, and ignored. Yeah. So 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 again, it's it's a matter of convenience versus security in, in many cases. Uh, and, and it's very, very difficult to make security convenient. Like it, it, it's, it's, it's not one or the other. Like you can have both, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, I'm, it's thinking, definitely... I'm thinking about AWS enabling all the IAM rules for me by default. Oh, you're trying to connect these two things together. Here you go. Um, and I have no idea, I mean, which, yeah, helpful. I don't know if that's the right thing. Um, it's helpful until it's not what you need and, and, and you overreach with your grants. Uh, exactly. It's yeah, a whole... How, can can that get, is that fixable? Well, it could be fixable if you realize ahead of time that no matter what you design in and no matter how helpful you are, somebody's going to have an outlier case where they're going to need to, to not be helped. So you need to build it on in with a don't help me switch, an off switch. And that would go a long way to making people less frustrated. Yeah, I'm think I'm thinking through. When you, where are you talking about security? I mean, this is like such a long topic. I mean, you need more specific context. Are, are you talking that is, about that? Is that is a uh, that is a good thing to try and? I mean, there's, there's all kinds of challenges. You're talking like you know when when Julian was talking last week, he was talking about security and the CI/CD pipeline and. Yeah, the complexity of dropping it all in and false positives breaking the pipeline. 
right? That's that's one set of trying to do analysis at the code level before it gets out the door. There's a whole other level of, you know, once it's out the door, how do you do security, right? Given that we are increasingly, particularly during the pandemic in a world where it's no longer confined to a data center, even a cloud. I, I would let, I would love to talk on the infrastructure side of that equation then, right? Of I'm setting things up, I need access to do that setup, but then do I, am I keeping the doors? Are you thinking like I'm, uh, but now I've kept the doors open. I haven't, I haven't locked things down or. No, I'm thinking like, you know, so I'm talking to like the, the Netscope guys this week, right? And so, um, you know, in their world, they're, they're trying to secure endpoints that are no longer inside the data center where they're executing workloads at the edge. They're on a, a enterprise site someplace out there. They're on a end user's device. Right there, there's you know there's no longer a physical perimeter to protect, right? And and so the whole notion of how you do that creates a whole new model for security, right? So that's what I'm kind of referring to on the, the runtime side of things, if you would, and then on the you know, development side, I'm actually like so one one of the challenges I sit on a board for a startup, yeah, they're trying to basically consolidate all the different um, security tools. The one we put into into a single pipeline, so it's a five minute install instead of having a dozen different tools that go into your pipeline. And then you know we're working hard on eliminating some of the false positives that Julian was talking about because you can't break the CI/CD pipeline, or at least you have to make it intelligent about a false positive, or or I should say you have to have some confidence level um, in a detected security that it's not a false positive that you don't break the CI/CD pipeline. Um, you know, and then there's views into security. There's, you know, there, there is a development manager, and then there's what does the CEO um, need to know about security, right? What's what's my threat position as it sits today? So there's just a, a boatload of consumers. It, it's really not an easy thing. Um, and there's lots of challenges to make it work smoothly in the development side. I feel that security is missing a heavy dose of mathematics. Mathematics? Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and, I, I mean, you look at most of the established security uh, approaches and, and they're black and white. They're either it, like this is secure or this is not secure. The, it, there, there's, there's some cases where you'd have Okay, I, I have this zone, this zone, so you partition it, so you have so you add different degrees of security, but but they're still at fixed points. Uh you you don't have any any fuzzy logic for saying like um like yeah, for example, like with the CICD pipeline, like okay, this is uh this is a vulnerability. How much does this vulnerability impact me? As opposed to it just being a general vulnerability, um, and and that's the the, the part where we think that the mathematics is needed is like, uh, I, I I think we need to do a shift from locking or again the the zeros and ones lo locking things down and and i being either one hundred percent secure or not not being secure at all to do a risk management approach. We say, 
okay, um, I, I'm going to do the math and all of these vulnerabilities together put me at, let's say, 20% increased risk. Is this acceptable or not? Uh, and, and then move forward from there. There are a couple of problems with that. One of them is that we don't anticipate well what the attacker will do. So we have no way to easily say 20% worse. And second, that we're increasingly intolerant of vulnerabilities that were ignored. So hmm. you might you might know there's a vulnerability, but you know, you're not really okay with the fact that it gets exploited and the bad guy walks all over your corporation. So there's that issue. And also we're really poor at the additional thing, which is okay, a vulnerability got exploited. What is the business risk? That is, what's the consequence for my organization? And that's really hard. Yeah, yeah uh, absolutely. I, 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 just to be clear, I, I don't claim that this is easy. Uh, but yes, like the, the, the risk calculation, like, the, like what's the business risk of allowing this and, and so on, that, that is, uh, as you said, like that, that, that is one of the fundamental parts that need to be evaluated. And, and, and I don't know if, if mathematics mm -hmm. is, is going to be the right approach for this, uh, but I, like I, I, again, I feel that like we, we can no longer say like, we, we, we can no longer say that a system that we set up is 100% secure. So, so, never, so why not never, go away with that and, and say, like, unless it's a rock, but, but that's not going to be useful. So, right. like, so, so instead of saying the system is 100% secure, is say, how about we shift towards thinking, like, this system has this much risk? Yeah, but that's impossible to figure out a priori. So... Yeah. One way to think about it is think back to sort of the insurance industry when they were both sitting out across the the seas to go and get spices and whatever else, right? Okay, you could build a big strong ship, but it could get hit by rock or whatever, right? All sorts of evil lay on its way. The insurance industry arose to deal with those, you know, those remaining risks. And they <clears throat> the way that actuarial science evolved was to not take an individual risk, well, actually to assess an individual risk against a bucket of risks. In other words, the statistics say, don't try and look at your one app and <clears throat> try and assess the risk because you get it wrong. Look at the industry and try and find equivalence or whatever and then model the risk to the industry, right? Or the attack rate or whatever it happens to be. And then you have a way of dealing with it and that is insurance. Mm -hmm. And that yeah. is exactly uh, part of the, the problem with doing the mathematics. I, I think at the moment is we're not doing the risk analysis enough uh, we have enough information, we're not doing the analysis for yes. at least some of the areas, like for instance, ransomware. Well, yeah, there's new stuff, but there is certainly 
the, the amount of information we have for the risks of the business risks of ransomware, we should be able to apply the actuarial math that Simon talks about, but nobody's doing that as yet. Maybe that's a that would be a good business to well, the, uh, the start. insurers, the insurers are doing it. I mean, you can buy cyber risk insurance, but thus far, they're actually pretty good at dealing with complexity the other way around, which is excluding coverage or excluding <laughs> responsibility when you can't articulate the risk well they and they also stipulate a considerable number of practices and and, and procedures that need to get put in place in order yeah. to get that yeah. type of insurance exactly. um, which which is good hygiene exactly um, but you don't know that it like i mean this is, I actually would pull us back to infrastructure a little bit, but I'll give you, I'll give you the example that has us rolling our eyes. The, we have um, contracts that stipulate that everybody in the company has to run antivirus software on their desktops. Because that's good hygiene. Makes very little difference for the security of the software that we're providing, but that's, they've decided that's a, a bar that that's required as part of actual obligations to it. Um, look, so I mean, I do so think, some of it's some of it's theater, right? Well, no, I mean, I think, look, sure. I mean, there, there are definitely systems out there today that are doing real-time threat analysis and updating it and, and um, doing the things you guys are talking about. I mean, that's go being one. There's a couple of other startups I know that are doing these things. So it's it's not like that, that it's an impossible technology. It, it's not right. like... We do have we do have codes we can apply, right? So in, in medical we had CPT, right? We we have um, threat codes that come out of most of the major threat databases. Everything gets categorized. We can look how many times these things have been penetrated or attempted to be penetrated into it. And there are definitely companies turning that into the actuarial study of you know, how do I block these things. Um, what I would have said is what you're kind of going towards, Rob, is you know what what are the what are the things you can do that have the highest impact, right? So, you know, I, I'd argue probably most of the code out of here doesn't even do basic static code analysis for security faults in the code. Sure. I mean, how many people run OWASP analysis? How many people actually run, um, you know, code for checking for credentials in code, right? I mean, the tools are there. I, I just think most organizations don't even employ them. And uh, no, because they don't consider themselves at, at risk or that they've mitigated it during their right. during their initial code pass. Like or, or they have time. I was talking with Sephora, right? Yeah. And, and you know, they're a perfume company or whatever it is makeup, right? And so getting a business user to sign off on adding more security into the product versus you know putting that into a marketing budget is a tough sale for them. But there's also the the fact that I mean, there, there, there's there's definitely DevOps talent out there, but there's very little or there's not enough DevOps talent that focuses on security. Like the, the if you're a if you're mm -hmm. a DevOps engineer and you have security experience, 
you get snapped up pretty quickly by larger companies or security vendors, etc. And that doesn't leave any talent available for startups. Uh, it it doesn't uh, it doesn't leave any mentorship available for new DevOps talent that has their entry in, in, in a startup. I don't so, think startups are the issue. There are four thousand at least funded security startups. Okay, and they're doing one of everything. Every single thing you could imagine is being done. Okay, the problem is on the customer and market side. So, right, so, 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 so that. Sorry, I, I, just a bit to clarify. Uh, I, I wasn't talking about that. I wasn't talking about that. That there's no talent for security focused startups. I was just talking about. Um, oh, but talent for, for, for small IT businesses. No, I'm with you. Or IT for okay. small businesses. But this, uh, hey, let me give my classic example of a big business, okay? We've all seen these wonderful pictures of the latest US destroyer, right? Fabulous stuff. This fucking thing runs Windows XP. <laughs> okay? This fucking boat runs Windows XP. Why? Because you have a bunch of suppliers like Lockheed Martin and so on who will not move their fucking software over to Windows 10 or something better. That's you, the problem. You know, Simon, this is the first time I think I heard you swear. It's amazing. <laughs> Sorry. This one is personal, yeah. So the so part of what John was saying and part of what's going on, but it's going on at the business side, which I'll, which some of us don't see very much, and most of the DevOps and operators and technical side of folks don't see or hear about is that the migration of the risk analysis information moving from just uh, being known and whatnot and being in startups and moving into the insurance companies for these corporations saying, we're not going to insure you unless you do this. And that, that might be starting at this point. And as Rob said, a lot of it, they just say, we're not insuring you on this, this, and this. Yeah, I think. And when they done. say, we're, we will cover you if you do this, like if Sephora does the uh, stuff, then the losses would be covered. Yeah. That's and we're kind of at the cusp of uh, a lot of that stuff where there's so much new threats coming out. The old threats are making into the insurance. The new threats, well, nobody knew about it. So insurance companies certainly aren't going to cover that thing or the actuarial because there's not enough data to generate actuarial tables. And I think in, in on the security side, <clears throat> there are too many small uh, tools of which you've got a limited view. So you could imagine a much better view if you had a broader set of data, right? From yes. a, a, across the corporation or something. And so the problem with that startup space is that they have a very really small view. And so <clears throat> a startup could be 
yelling themselves blue in the face about some small thing and you say it doesn't matter but it's exactly. nonetheless an important component of an overall risk profile exactly um, i think so, that the, yeah. the model's wrong right it's not an insurance model so the reality check is whether it's because of the cost of migrating whether it's a lack of companies and that kind of stuff enterprises are are probably never going to build that level of security themselves, right? right? So if you go to a CDN, right, uh, you know, we wrap it for you, right? We put the WAFs out, we put the DDoSs out, we put the, the threat mitigation in, right? And I think that's what you're really gonna see. I think you're gonna see the applications get wrapped in a security layer. Yes, and so the, the, cool thing, the cool thing about infrastructure as a service in general is that you can increasingly for the lower levels of abstraction delegate ensure um, the securing as well as the runtime of the thing to competent providers right whose job is to make that really go away so the problem is really high levels of, of abstraction your code your apps yes And I actually just saw that this week when a friend moved her long time website, she just delegated her website to a larger organization and said, here, you maintain it uh, because I don't have the time, energy or expertise anymore to make sure it's secure up and uh, mm. updated. And lots of good information out there. This way, it keep the information stays out there, but it's now maintained by another organization that already has a large, large uh, web web page uh, set that right. they're already maintaining more effectively than she could at this point. So yeah infrastructure as a service. The, the thing that I, I wonder, I mean, what you're describing to me is the sassification of a lot of this stuff. And, and it makes perfect sense. Like I use WordPress instead of running my own WordPress. Like I use WordPress.com instead of running my own WordPress site for all those reasons. Um, is, is delegate is basically just turning, turning all this stuff over to a SAS, the, going to produce the security that we want because i my gut tells me no ultimately well, i think it, i think it i think with the level of sophistication you see in cotter and in, in modern um, security platforms i think it solves i think it solves if you're looking at the risk analysis it solves the majority of the risk analysis they have capabilities mm -hmm. way beyond anything a normal enterprise could implement. yep i agree exactly <clears throat> that's, and that's i one. I think it's it's already made things a lot better than it was. Yeah, the, the other yeah. side too is there's problems they can handle that an enterprise can't handle, right? So if um, you get a Sony attack and they're trying to do a denial of service against your infrastructure, right? A Sony is never going to be able to have enough capacity to protect against that threat. 
right? Like when you look at SaaS services, we could have six or a dozen DDoSs happening at a good point in life, and we barely notice them because of the capacity we had. So there's yes. things like the scale. Yeah, so scale is huge, right? Scale is your friend. Yes. And scale yeah. is your friend also for another reason, which is if you break into your SaaS provider, go find my data. Yeah, good luck. Well, the data is the second piece, right? So if you think about data that goes on those mm -hmm. things, and you think about video in particular, right? We, we, we put digital rights management on top of the data. So the data has value. You encrypt it before you upload it to the SaaS in a way that ensures that even if the SaaS is broken, your data is still protected. Assuming that you've done that well, right? I mean, that's an assumption. I guess the, the thing I come back to is what would it take for us to build software that actually did that for people as a, you know, built into the software and let the maintenance of that, the systems be part of, you know, owning the software rather than having to centralize everything and make it yeah, assume that the SaaS right? company is doing it right. Oh, <laughs> well, instead of making also, that assumption. But there's value in the SaaS, which is something which is really important, which I think Joan didn't point out, which is that the SaaS can be quickly fixed for everybody. So you get some software, like, you mm. know, Lucky Martin got Windows XP 20 years ago. And they 30. don't, they don't fix it, right? <laughs> but they don't fix it, right? And so the value of SaaS is also that the incentivized provider of the service can also fix the software quickly for everybody all at once, and it just moves forward. So if there is a vulnerability, not only are they trying to make their service attractive so they're incentivized to do the right thing, but also if there is an issue, they'll fix it fast for everyone. And part of that goes back to the whole insurance industry where SaaS has uh, guaranteed levels of service and protection, stuff like that. And as a large company that has those specific things, they either are provider, they are certainly providers of insurance to you, but then they can actually get underwriters to indemnify themselves against some of these non uh, unknowns at the moment. So this actually allows for an insurance, a second uh, uh, insurance market to be viable. It, it could, you know, I haven't seen anyone do that, right? But I think, um, and it also intends the financial model wrapped around these things, right? Um, so, you know, Akamai used to sell DDoS insurance to their customers, right? Uh, but the reason they did that is Akamai had no backbone. So there was no cost to them uh, for a DDoS because yeah. every, every request that came in meant they built their, they build their customers more, right? So Akamai loved DDoSs because the bills went through the roof. They would sell protection to the customers that to, to prevent from getting you know, this massive bill into it. So there's some financial incentives around these things, but the only insurance I've seen was to the customer. Rob, yeah, so, so what you're saying there, I think, is, John, is that at scale, 
when you have lots and lots of customers, the insurance model is kind of natural in the sense that if you want to keep lots and lots of customers, you can do the right thing, right? Exactly. Well, I think it's, it's, and you can charge them for it. But it's, it's how you build your infrastructure. Though. So we didn't charge, we, we would charge a, a flat fee for DDoS protection, um, not because our customers actually needed it, just because they wanted it. It was a checkbox yeah. on their Right. Yeah. So we would do that just like we would charge for a WAF, just like we'd charge for any number of other security offerings around it. But I think, Rob, I think where you're missing the point, right, is if I've got that level of scale and, and just going back to like Julian and, and the Google guys, right, we have access to more data than, than most enterprises will ever see. Well, I'd say probably any enterprise will ever see. So our ability to do it right and do it well probably exceeds the capabilities of, of virtually all but the largest of enterprises. And, and then to virtualize that, or visualize that back to you because we have that data, not just for your organization, but be able to aggregate the data from all the companies we actually represent, I think puts them in a much better position to do it right than a, a single enterprise. I, I buy that argument. Um, and I think that the we're better at running our software than than you you could be is a reasonable you know this i think that's part of the, why SaaS have become so attractive i guess on the flip side i look at you know the number of SaaS's. i'm just looking at what rack end uses the number of, of SaaS's that rack end uses and the holes and connections that we punch together so that data can transit between those those different services and i start asking my you know my, you know, it's not the intrusion that I'm worried about. It's the, oh yeah, I have an intentional door here and, you know, I'm happy to ship all my data through that door because that's the right egress method. And then it's not the right thing to do or expensive to do it for me. And I'm, I'm you know, I'm not able to run the software myself, put it all behind my firewall and ship data wherever I want it to be. So it, it's, and those, those strike me as security vulnerabilities also. Yeah, integration expands the attack surface. Well, as I said, I would have said that that the, the lack of a, a physical perimeter expands the, the attack surface. Mm. Right. I mean, it, it's now that we have, um, now that we have these, um, you know, you're running all over the place. So like, think think about, you know, you no longer have an employee sitting at their desk with COVID, right? So you're at a coffee shop, you're in a house, you're, you're wherever that happens to be. Um, and so the, the notion of even having a perimeter inside of AWS really no longer exists. And so the metaphors need to morph, right, to deal with that reality. Um, yeah, it, it I means so like, as I said, I mean, I've been working with the, the the Netscope guys, and I think they've got a pretty reasonable solution to how they provide kind of those those on-device proxies or virtualized firewalls to allow you to create, um, you know, a secure environment across kind of this this non-secure perimeter. Now, uh, I know there's a number of other co companies in that space that are doing those types of things, but I mm. I don't think it's an unsolved problem. I can add. I'm talking to the the Netscope guys today. If you want them to, to come in and do a you know, 20 minute blurb on what their tech is and how they put their things together, I could ask you. I always want that. I love hearing. Yeah, I love having people come in and 
and showcase and, and and open themselves up to questions about what's going on. That, that to me is, it's a service that we we can provide as a group and it's, I love hearing it. So, yeah. Um, but but what, what you're describing to me is, is not, is, is a generalized technology that I don't think we do a good job with um, as, as an industry, which is, um, exposing and securing point these point-to-point -point communications right like if i go back and think about the last 40 minutes the the there's a connect the dots in here which is i have two things that need to talk to each other how do i ensure that that i wanted that to happen how do i track that it's happening how do i turn it off when i don't want it to happen anymore um right those are that's what iam policies are it's what um my friggin' privacy settings are on my phone that I can't surface easily or track or or they don't have any fine-grained control in it, drives me nuts. Um, I mean, fast to SaaS communications, like, hey, yeah, I'm connecting Slack to GitHub. Woohoo, I have no idea what I actually just enabled or who can use it. I mean, could we have, if, if that, it seems to me if that improved in a consistent, repeatable way then we would have better security It'd be like having a good firewall which, which brings me back to the, the point i was making earlier that we don't have enough talent knowledgeable in, in security like mm. like going going back to the example like, like github and, and slack connectivity even if you could review the permissions do you know that by, do, by reviewing them, you you can make a uh, educated decision as to whether they're acceptable. In, I, I do think that if the systems were set up so that I could see which ones were being used and which ones weren't being used, um, then I could start making decisions about, you know, are these really necessary? Are these no longer you know, could I, could I shut them off? Could I, you know, do I need to harden? Some of them, sometimes I think the opposite is true, right? It's a, you might have a conduit that's much more important than you realize, yep. like the Suez Canal. You might, it's really an important conduit. You 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 haven't even realized it, that a whole bunch of traffic's flowing through it. Imagine um, if something had happened at the Panama Canal at the same time. An interesting, yeah. Yeah. So Rob, what do you envision is the driver to cause those two entities, GitHub and Slack in your example, to improve the experience, the security, the whatever? I if that if those conduits started to become attack vectors then I would see that as a as as a as as a reason to improve it, or if it became a um, if there was a lot of traffic moving over that that conduit that you know was was they were losing money because of that conduit, um, which I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing, but I would expect they'd want to know that there was a lot of data moving on that conduit. So you're saying that, oh, sorry. 
Yeah, I was just kidding. You're blind to that traffic. That's the problem. Observability. We're, we're missing that. Like we, we can observe our, our own systems within reasonable degrees. But once we interact with third party systems, that all breaks down. Ding, 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 ding. I guess my, my observation of that is the whole point of the integration is that you don't care. And so the whole, you, you have this completing thing and why I have a hard time with the insurance model altogether is that you're talking about one-off events that, and interactions, right? That's whole purpose is to be hidden from the consumer. And so there's no driver for any of that applicability to drive any of the improvements, the tracking, the, the costing, all that stuff. And so it's kind of like, okay, I find it a bit, it's like, it seems like we're talking sideways to trying to actually figure out what the real problem is, right? Because it doesn't feel like we've actually gotten to a real problem yet. But it sounds to me to like, sounded to me like Rob was talking about, in some cases you do care, your organization is doing something unique you do want to know what's going on. You do want to monitor it. You don't just necessarily want or be able to have a off the shelf here. This will just work for you. The, the well, average look, okay. I was going to say like some organizations, like if you're a small business selling whatever, and you just want your website and your transactions for your online store to work, that's a pretty off-the-shelf SaaS thing, but you're talking about kind of custom, how does your organization use Slack connected to GitHub kind of thing? Well, uh, let me, and, and so really specifically, say I turn on Calendly. Calendly says, oh, I'm going to start helping you with your calendaring. And to do that, I need access to your email, which I, I think it's the correct granularity, right? I need access to your calendar. I need access to all, all of your email. Um, this is a little bit aside from the infrastructure security side, but that's a that's a huge wide open tap. And I actually don't have any real way of knowing how often they use that, how well they secure that. I mean, I'm, I'm making a ton of assumptions. Maybe there's other people who do a lot more due diligence on the quality of Calendly's API protection but they could be now scanning my email for whatever they want. I do. I personally stay away from tools that uh, want broad permissions like that. Be, be, because I, I haven't found a good way to verify it in a lot of cases. And I'm not sure that they, that they could, like, I don't think the security controls from the provider side would say, Hey, you know what? You can look at all the emails that are calendar related but you can't look at you know more more nuanced email selections. um yeah you're you're essentially trusting the tool to if it sees an email that's not calendar related to ignore it yes. you're trusting the tool to do the right thing whereas if someone within calendly decided that they wanted to spy on you they could write an app that would 
look for something else and forward those emails out that pipe anytime they wanted to. So it's True, almost the insider. Okay. It, it's yes, it opening up the door for insider attacks. And, and, and that is, that is the, 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 the exact same line of reasoning for some people wanting to host their own email as opposed to using, say, Gmail or, 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 or 365. Is that, I mean, they are... Oh, that's right. There are lowered risks by knowing that the, the, the fallout for uh, bad data safety on those providers would be rather catastrophic for them. Uh, but as a consumer, you don't have control over it. And you are like you're still affected by the fallout in, in that your own private information has already been leaked. So so yeah, so it, it's it, it again it, it's it's the same the exact same kind of question. Like how far do you trust these providers? Uh, with email, it, it, it's one step away. Well, that, then Calendly, that becomes another step away. So how many degrees of, of, of trust are you willing to, to allow? But it's, it's almost a lack of rights. I mean, there's secure email, right? I could encrypt it if it was that important to me, and there's services allowing me to do it. There's secure messaging, right? I mean, but the, the pain factor of going and finding those services, setting them up, they're not necessarily mainstream, is, is really the blocker to that, right? That's and and this is where where you went where I was thinking where around what Greg's question was, which is the are these things valuable to the consumer, right? The the benefit is integration. If you're putting security in that stands in the way of of my integrations, I'm going to turn off your security, which is I think where we are. Yep. Yeah. That um, that, that was my original premise. Is yeah that I. The moment it, it becomes inconvenient, um, people turn off security. But we 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 did some work to enable secure boot for people, and I uh, and I had expected a lot more enthusiasm around secure boot. Um, and one of the challenges with secure boot is that once you turn it on, there's you you there's no fallback. You have to do secure boot, which is right. But the the risk of that becomes you know high enough that the benefit of secure boot which is marginal i would argue um doesn't doesn't outweigh the risk of of making your infrastructure not bootable um yep. and so that you know that's i but i feel and i feel like that conversation we we've been having that exact same conversation of yeah i know that it's you know opening up all my email for this one convenience app maybe isn't isn't so great but i don't have a way to not do that i don't have a way to monitor it and i want the integration and in, in some cases you, you don't even have a say like if you're, if you're mm. an employee at a company that that has kindly enabled on on, on their uh, business account do you have a choice to disable it on your own uh account on, under that company do you know that it's enabled in the first place? No, that's the uh, right. The number of times when it's been like you know Slack integrations to me back in the day were 
software like this. It's like, oh, I want to play with this Slack integration. Click, click. Now, if now if everybody has no all of no no whatever company has access to all Slack. I mean, the the, the one that's kind of like if you think about um, <laughs> Ad Ericsson and Ed Vidscale, right? That the one that was the most controversial was installing that quote antivirus security package on your cell phone. Right, and it's like ah, you want to you want to rootkit my cell phone so you can track everything I want to do. That's not going to happen. Yeah, no, that's right. And there were there was an app that was doing that for something. Yeah. Well, wasn't the 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 Java installer from Oracle installing? Was it uh, McAfee? Yeah, there, there was a number of these things. I mean, I, I, the Lenovo um, BIOS would reinstall its backdoor. Um, you know, I mean, there there are you know good intentions, and there's that that are misapplied. There's bad intentions. The one I'm curious about um, that that when I talked to the Netscape guys this week is they claim to be able to decrypt SSL and peer inside the packets to do context-specific security. Really? I'm curious how they do that. Yeah. I mean, without, ah. without inserting an intermediate CA that you can decrypt from, which is what we did at Bluecoat. That's the way people usually uh, do, yeah. Which created just a whole bunch of, of employee and legal issues to do that. Um, but you know, doing that at scale, um, yeah, that's the one I was curious about is, you know, whether they're, they're, they're um, getting inside of core encryption mechanisms to get access to the payloads. Hmm. Or, and, or, or, or there was the case uh, of, the, of that root CA who was handing um, search to, uh, what was it, uh, law enforcement uh, or, or, or governments to uh, to to man in the middle uh, certain connections. Yeah, I mean, this was like a hot issue in the telco space because when everything started going over the internet and everyone went to encryption, there was a lot of push from law enforcement and governments to be able to, to do a legal intercept and decrypt the traffic um, you know, with a, a search warrant on it. Um, and there's really no easy way to do that other than to go to the holder of the cert and, and you know, be able to get that certificate and then decrypt it on the traffic. And they wanted a much more generic mechanism to be able to just drop down in and eavesdrop for effect. Okay. Um, and there was no good answer to it. All right, and so, there are were to introduce an intermediate certificate that it, it would have been obvious to the person on the other end that it had been intercepted. It's no longer going to, you know, your, your bank. It's now coming from some other location. Um, yeah, and then they're, they're, they're literally it's your quest. Now we need you guys to hide that. It's like, <laughs> okay, I don't control the browser, but I'm curious. I'd see what they did if they'll even say. I'm thinking Sounds like a the whole, good the whole, uh, the whole topic security for the challenge. agenda with them. Yeah. Was that interesting Rob? to hear it? No, I just. You know, talking about security always makes me feel like, um, you know, to, to what Greg was asking is, you know, what what are we trying to what are we trying to improve? What are we trying to accomplish when we talk about security? And then what's the motive? You know, is there a, a motivate a by motivation? People to really um, 
fix it. I, I just don't, I, I'm not sure there is, so it's not going to get fixed until there is. Or we slow down and figure out security is actually a first, you know, we have to do it first. I, yeah, go, go back to the, the, the last security breach, right? I mean, people care because it compromises their information. Right, but but just about everything in security, they only care about it after they've been breached. Unless you're a government. I, I wouldn't even go that far, <laughs> right? But I mean, you know, at, at Bluehood, I can tell you, getting someone to buy a security appliance was a lot easier after the breach. It was no longer a one-year sales cycle. It was, <laughs> now, how fast can you get it? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I wonder if the examples of, you know, people just saying yes to connect these two things together is going to be the next version of uh, spear phishing attacks on. Uh, how, how many apps, yeah. how many apps in the Google and the Apple stores have had to be pulled down for distributing malware or for, for um, harvesting information? I mean, it's already there. That's true. Yeah, sorry. That's true. All right. Security. On that, on that comforting note, we are <laughs> top of the hour. Uh, if we can find some good speakers, I'd love to keep keep bringing back. Um, I, I think that I think this is an important topic. We just we do need to find ways to narrow it down and talk. Thanks. Cool. All right, everybody. Thank you. Cool. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Thank you for joining us with the Cloud 2030 podcast. These are interactive discussions, and we want you to take part. Please join us uh, at part of these weekly open discussions at the2030.cloud. Sign up, come in, and bring your opinions. We want to hear them. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly, or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.